let's talk about history, imagination and politics around Eastern Europe, in particular Ukraine. I'm happy to invite Larry Wolf, a prominent American historian. You're listening to the Explaining Ukraine podcast. Larry Wolf is a professor of history at New York University. He's the author of numerous books about Eastern Europe, in particular, Inventing Eastern Europe, The Map of Civilization on the Mind of the Enlightenment, The Enlightenment and the Orthodox World, The Idea of Galicia, History and Fantasy in Habsburg Political Culture, and Woodrow Wilson and the Reimagining of Eastern Europe. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I am a Ukrainian philosopher, chief editor of Ukraine World, and president of Pan Ukraine. Before we start, let me remind you that Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We provide exclusive content for our patrons. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front lines at PayPal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. You can find these links in the description of this episode. Larry Wolf, welcome to this podcast. Thank you very much. So I'm a fan of your book, Inventing Eastern Europe. And frankly speaking, it is a book that I'm giving to my students regularly. And we are discussing its arguments. And I remember first reading it back, I think, in 2000s. And as as far as I understand the major argument of your book is you're trying to show how the idea of Eastern Europe emerged in the 18th century, in the Western 18th century, how the idea of the West versus East was replacing the idea of Northwest versus South. But at the same time, how Eastern Europe, from Poland to to Ukraine and other countries, were kind of perceived by the Western Europeans, primarily by French philosophers, as kind of barbarians, non-civilized. Is that what you're trying to say? So I wouldn't put it exactly that way. That is to say, barbarian is a term that was sometimes used, but it's a crude term that really belongs to an earlier period. What was interesting to me about the 18th century is that Eastern Europe, as as I understood it, was being understood according to a different um, set of values, and that it was being understood as backward but capable of development, which is different from the absolute opposition of civilization and barbarism. That is to say, it was understood in the West that Eastern Europe existed in some relationship to Western Europe, um, part of the same European continent, but um, the idea of backwardness um, created a sense of superiority and inferiority, a sense of who was ahead and who was behind, but allowed for the possibility of an evening of the plane. So it's, of course, uh, kind of uh, echoes the famous concept of Orientalism by Edward Said. And I think in, I don't know if in, if in this book, uh, maybe also in other books like uh, your book about Galicia, you are talking about a certain semi-Orientalism with regard to uh, to Eastern Europe. 
how do you place your argument within this discourse of Orientalism started by Said? Well, I think you you just summed it up beautifully when you said semi-Orientalism. Um, I think the term I use in the book is demi-Orientalism, but the it's that same idea. That is to say, what's interest? I was of course very influenced by um, Said's brilliant book. But what seemed interesting to me about Eastern Europe is that it was not absolutely other with a capital O, the way that Said describes the Orient, but that it was, as I as I suggested before, related to Western Europe. It was both um, intimate and um, exotic at the same time. It was understood to be part of the part of the European continent and therefore could not be absolutely other with a capital O. And that's what made it interesting to me. Well, for me, uh, also inspired by your book, uh, I started looking a little bit differently also on, on the French Enlightenment. And uh, in particular, I'm teaching the course of philosophy of Enlightenment in Kiev Mahila Academy in Kiev. And uh, for me, it was always a question why such figures as Diderot and Voltaire and some others were so much, um, uh, how to say it, fascinated by the by the Russian Empire of the time, by Catherine II. Uh, we know the story that Diderot came to Catherine and, and spent, uh, I think, half a year in St. Petersburg and Voltaire exchanged I would say emails, but not emails, mails, letters with her. And uh, when I'm asking why this fascination, I think uh, now reading your book that it was precisely this idea, very naive idea, that the Russian Empire will be precisely this force that will turn this uh, demi-civilization or semi-civilization or backwardness into real civilization. Uh, up to the level of the of the of the French culture of the time, and this was the major illusion. And and uh, people like Voltaire and Diderot uh, did not understand the this major tyrannical force behind Russian Empire of the time. What do you think? Um, I think that you've summed it up really really well. I would make a distinction between Voltaire and Diderot. That is to say, Diderot is someone who actually does travel to St. Petersburg, and um, because of the time that he spends in St. Petersburg, he is disillusioned, though he keeps his disillusionment mostly to himself and does not express it directly to Catherine's face. Voltaire, on the other hand, never travels to Russia. Voltaire never travels east of Berlin in his lifetime. His relationship to Eastern Europe is entirely vicarious. We could say literary, philosophical, or a fantasy relationship. And Voltaire is therefore never disillusioned with Russia and with Catherine. I would say that in both of, for both of them, the fantasy is connected to a myth of Peter, Peter the Great, who a myth that they partly helped to construct within the French Enlightenment, and the idea that precisely because Russia is the most backward and eastern part of Europe, that the civilizing of Russia would be the ultimate test of Enlightenment and civilization. And therefore, the project of 
civilizing Russia, which I should add still lies ahead of us at the 21st century, um, is one that they found particularly exciting. Exactly. I do share share your estimation. And uh, what was totally overlooked when people looked at Peter or Catherine was this brutality by which uh, they were proceeding with this so-called civilization. So, of course, people like nations like Ukrainians know it very much. In our tradition, you have a very, very critical, let's say, put it in this way. Uh, critical is a very soft term critical assessment of both Peter and Catherine, starting at least from Taras Shevchenko, who really uh, had very, very bad words for them. But coming coming back to this illusion, I would say, don't you think that it persists? It persists throughout many, uh, many Western intellectuals from that time, from the 18th century, we can find this fascination in the 19th century, obviously in the 20th century, but it was fascination already with Russian communism. People from André Gide uh, until Feuchtwanger and, uh, and many others. And even today, I mean, of course, I'm, I'm asking a question which probably goes beyond your historical profession, but uh, as a citizen, what do you think? Do you think there is a continuity be- between people like Voltaire and especially Diderot and uh, current uh, people who are fascinated by the idea that Russians have this strong hand and they will, you know, spread the, the world um, on, on a vast territory. So I'm less sure about the present moment, whether we could identify a class of Western intellectuals who are um, fascinated with Russia in that way right now. But it's and and I'd be interested to hear what you thought about that and who 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 you would identify as those figures. But it's certainly true for the mid twentieth century and the fascination with Bolshevism and Stalin from the nineteen thirties um, right up until certainly the nineteen fifties and the nineteen sixties. There was a class of French intellectuals in particular. You mentioned Gide, although Gide like Diderot made a trip to the uh, to the Soviet Union uh, as Diderot went to Russia and came away from it disillusioned. But there were other intellectuals who, through their whole lives or through a large part of their lives, remained fascinated by Bolshevism in Russia and believed that you could not publicly criticize even Stalin. Um, in the 1930s, the 1940s, the 1950s. And there I think that um, there is a really interesting parallel. And I would go further and say that there were, that the, the first French scholars who really wrote in a thoughtful and critical way about the philosophes in the 18th century, about Diderot, about Voltaire, were French intellectuals of the middle of the 20th century who felt that they were witnessing something similar in the French fascination with Stalinism and Bolshevism. I'm thinking of a, of a, of a classic book by um, Lortolari, which was called Le Mirage Russe. And it was about Russia as a mirage 
for the philosophers of the Enlightenment, but implicitly also about the Soviet Union as a mirage for French intellectuals in the middle of the 20th century. So yes, I think you're absolutely right that those continuities exist. I'm not sure that they exist today. That is to say, I think that the um, barbarism of Putin and Russia at the present moment is so frankly presented to the world that I think it would be difficult to maintain um, that level of fascination and delusion at the present moment. Let's come back to to history, uh, to your domain. And uh, uh, I think if, if we go back to the 18th century, so what constructed this illusion, this mirage of Russia as a civilizing power, is the very idea of the empty space, which is very important for the 18th century, even for the physics of the 18th century, uh, even for the aesthetics of the 18th century, like the aesthetics of these uh, geometrical gardens, which presumes that nature is, is, is an object that you, you just form a geometrical figures from. So this idea of empty space um, and uh, a kind of a human uh, human ambition to fill it with something, it goes even into the Romantic age. Uh, I, I don't remember if you study uh, Byron uh, and his uh, poem Mazeppa, which is very, uh, very important for me, because if you look clearly, well, Mazeppa is a, obviously a Ukrainian hetman, famous hetman who, who went against uh, Peter I precisely and uh, was there, therefore afterwards cruelly uh, cruelly persecuted and basically ukrainian autonomy cossack autonomy in the russian empire russian moscovy state at the time was was um, annihilated uh, but the way how byron presents this figure i would not go into the details but the idea that mazeppa as a adulterous uh, person on the in the polish court is tied to the horse and sent into the ukrainian steppes and he travels for three days on a horse in the ukrainian steppes and nobody is around so this idea of an empty space that you can colonize uh, by you can colonize from the west uh, you can colonize from the east so total erasure of of the history of this place. Do you think there is certain? I mean, this is this is how imagination and knowledge and aesthetics becomes power. Because if you say that this place, this this space is empty, that the next step you say, okay, there is a Russian Empire who will fill it with something, with people, with ideas, with cities, etc. I think that's a really fascinating way to look to look at it, and I think that um, that that. You know, makes a makes a lot of sense. I would add to it the idea. Well, first, I would say that in terms of emptiness, we should not. We should also consider cartographical emptiness. That is to say, the world of the seventeenth and end eighteenth century are both very keen to map these regions in the east of Europe. There is a desire for a complete mapping of the continent, which um, we can trace through the cartography of the period, the idea to have place names that fill up the map. And if you look at a map of the 18th, uh, of an 18th century, uh, of an 18th century map from the beginning of the 18th century to the end of the 18th century, you can see them filling up the map with place names. But 
in addition to the emptiness, and I think this goes hand in hand with the question of emptiness, is the idea of these lands that are unknown, that are there to be discovered, that philosophes like Voltaire or Rousseau, who takes a very different approach, think of themselves a little bit as intellectual discoverers and even conquistadors who are exploring unknown lands when they write about Poland in the case of Rousseau, Russia in the case of Voltaire. Voltaire, in I, I would say, cite a very the what for me is really the fundamental text for the beginning of this exploration. That would be Voltaire's Histoire de Chardouze, the history of Charles the Twelfth, that he writes and publishes in the 1730s. Um, it's very important for thinking about Ukraine in the 18th century, because, of course, Charles travels through Ukraine and encounters Peter at Poltava. And when Voltaire writes about the territories that Charles is passing through, including Ukraine, he writes about them as ces pays inconnus, these unknown territories. And he's making them known to Europe by writing about them. And it's the this um, relationship between making known the unknown parts of Europe that I think is complements the idea of the emptiness, which you've already suggested. And by the way, Voltaire is also, also fascinated by the story of Mazeppa in the Histoire de Chaldeuse. Yeah, I love this text, and I love it to compare with another uh, history written by Voltaire. I think it's it's called the Histoire de l'Empire des Russes, uh, something like that. So yes. history of the Empire of Russians. Under and Peter this text... Yeah, and this text, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that there is a much uh, deeper linkage between Voltaire and, and Catherine, and probably if it's if it's even done on, on the money of uh, Catherine, am I right? I think he begins working on it during the previous reign of Elisabetta Petrovna, and that he um, completes it perhaps when Catherine has become... The, the already the Sarina after in, in the 1760s, but I think he may have begun publishing it already in the previous decade before Catherine seizes power. But certainly she was very gratified by it, and it became a kind of presentation card for Voltaire for um, making himself known to Catherine and um, exciting her interest in him as a complement to his interest in her. One of the things that's super interesting about Catherine, as viewed by the philosophers, is they understand that she's not Russian. And the idea that a, it's a German princess who is taking Russia in hand to civilize Russia is very fascinating to them as well. Yeah, and uh, another illusion. But uh, I, I, do, I did compare the phrases, the wordings of um, Histoire de Charles XII and uh, Histoire de, de l'Empire des Russes. And uh, in fact, you see how Voltaire is changing because in history of the Charles XII, he is really... He's interested in the Cossacks. He's interested in the Zaporizhia. Zaporizhia. He's 
uh, it's it's really fascinates him. He he portrays Mazepa well, interesting as an interesting personality. In the in the second text, it's clear that Mazepa is much more negative personality. So uh, it's it's also an evolution, um, I think, very very important one. And we talked about Byron, but Byron precisely took the story of this young young adventure of Mazepa from a footnote from uh, from Voltaire, but changed it co- completely, changed the very idea of it, and created a, created a fashion. And actually, we can we can talk farther about this idea because Pushkin was replying to Byron in his poem Poltava, and I don't know if you if you remember it, but frankly, for me, it's like the there is a clear ideological background for Pushkin's poem because he's trying to fight this uh, fashion for Mazepa as a, as a young hero. Uh, after Byron, there was Hugo, then there was a symphonic poem by Ferenc Liszt, and he tries to to show Mazepa as an old, not young, as a as an sexually pervert and not sexually attractive and therefore as politically pervert because he he's a traitor of peter instead of politically attractive as it was in 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 french and and english and french romantics what do you think of this story i think i think i think that that's that that's right and of course it's very i mean for pushkin it's very much a russian presentation of Mazepa. And it's interestingly, even with its sense of perversion, a romantic presentation of Mazepa. And doesn't it become the um the basis for Tchaikovsky's opera that later in the in the nineteenth century, which um combines these elements of um perversity and fascination together in as as a romantic um cocktail we we could say i mean it's not i mean there certainly there's a a fascination with mazepa even in the pushkin yeah um let, let, let you you mentioned already jean-jacques rousseau so i i i really admire rousseau and i think in that generation he is one of the most interesting characters but obviously we know about this uh, enmity between rousseau and voltaire and uh, basically completely different sets of ideas. Voltaire is about reason, rationality, anti-religion. Rousseau is about sentiments, the natural man, uh, l'homme naturel. Um, and here, what is the difference of their attitude? I think you argue that Rousseau is much more on the side of Poland, for example, than on the side of Russia. Well, in... It- I mean, in the most straightforward way, you would say that Voltaire um, embraces Russia and Rousseau embraces Poland. Um, as I said before, neither of them ever visits, so it's a platonic fascination for both of them. But it, they embrace Russia and in Poland in very different ways. That is to say, Voltaire embraces the idea of a very strong autocratic leader, um, Peter the Great or Catherine the Great, who will civilize the backwards or barbaric Russians, whereas Rousseau takes a Republican vision of 
Poland and believes that um, the nobles themselves constitute a civic force who can construct what Rousseau understands in a, at a very early moment in the 1770s to be a modern nation that takes responsibility for its own future and creates a sense of itself that will allow for its survival, even the face, even in the face of um, partition and um, political destruction. Yes, of course, Rousseau is much more Republican than Voltaire. And uh, of course, we can uh, we can discuss where, what what is more in Rousseau because you can you can look at Rousseau as the father of contemporary democracy, but you can also look at look at him as the father of quite authoritarian socialism, uh, which which later developed in in a, in a in a worse ways. Well, certainly in but, the social uh, contract where he believes that um, you can force men to be free, he formulates ideas that were used later in very ugly ways. Absolutely. Uh, but again, these are very interesting characters and uh, one needs to read and reread them. Let me uh, come to another book of yours, which I also like very much, uh, which is about Galicia. And... Um, Galicia is a very, very interesting place and very important place for Ukraine because even started from the Middle Ages, uh, Galicia and uh, uh, it was a place where Rus of Kiev has taken refuge after the, uh, the Mongol invasion and therefore you have there the kingdom of Rus and the kings of Rus, uh, Danilo um, and... Uh, uh, so it was kind of a, in in a very difficult situation. It it was a place where this medieval identity, which was uh, around surround, which was placed in Kiev, has taken refuge. And if you take the nineteenth century, Galicia was under Austrian and then Austro-Hungarian Empire, and contrary to the Russian Empire, in which. The Ukrainian language was banned, so you you could not publish books in Ukrainian. In Galicia, you could, and therefore, some of the intellectuals from the Russian Empire, from the Dnipro, Ukraine, were actually publishing the the, the works in Galicia. Tell me a little bit more about why you're interested in in this um, in in this region, which is obviously very important today uh, for today's Ukraine. So for, for me, intellectually, this was a project that came after my work on inventing Eastern Europe. And what I was interested in specifically was how the dynamics of East and West played out in an imperial context. Um, again, partly inspired by, by Said, who saw Orientalism as being intimately connected with imperialism. I was I posed for myself the question of whether we should understand the demi-Orientalism with which Eastern Europe was treated in relation to imperial projects. And I wrote a, a small book that was about um, Venice and, and Dalmatia um, at that time as well. And then a more, a more complicated book, I think, about the Habsburg monarchy and Galicia and what it meant to the Habsburgs to rule over Galicia. So that it, it originated as a kind of, you know, scholarly um, 
test case for me in thinking about the relationship between empire, Eastern Europe, and demi-Orientalism. But I would say also that um, coming to Galicia and to Ukraine was a um, very was was part of my scholarly background as well. I did my undergraduate studies in the 1970s at Harvard at the moment when the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute was established. Probably you've spent some time there. Yeah, yeah, but uh, very, very, very long ago. So for me also, this I, I mean, I've been there more back, you know, many times, but my very earliest training as a historian um, began in there in Cambridge and at the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute when it was brand new. Um, one of my undergraduate professors was Omelian Pritsak. I well, this is, was exactly the name I wanted to evoke. Yeah, this is a brilliant Ukrainian intellectual. Very brilliant. And it's great that you started with him. Yeah. But he came out of that post Galician world. Uh, born right after World War World War One, and he made it very vivid for for me. I and I had Polish profess a, a Polish professor as well who came out of that post Galician world of what was southeastern Poland in the nineteen twenties. And one of the things that's interesting about being, I guess, the age that I am, I'm now sixty six, is that. Being educated in the 1970s, it was possible to be exposed to professors who actually had very direct experience of the Habsburg or the post-Habsburg world. Um, and Gal Galicia was something that was alive and meaningful um, for them, even in the 1970s. It was something that they understood both in their work and in their lives. And um, that was something that you know became part of my scholarly formation. It's fascinating. What is, I think, interesting also in Galicia is that one perspective you can address this is obviously the perspective of imperialism and orientalism and the empire's province, etc. But another perspective is uh, how you look at uh, certain lands and, and cultural epochs through the lenses of comparing different empires. Uh, and here, in the Ukrainian case, you can say that there is a part of literature, of fiction literature of the 1980s, 1990s, I mean, people of like Yuri Andruhovich and and others, who are actually trying to work with this, I would say even Austrian myth in a positive way. So, they 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 found this placement of Galicia in um, in the Austrian context as a, as a precisely the foundation for Europeanness of of Ukraine. Now, of course, we have much wider perception of this, and now we are we are talking much more about the Europeanness of. Ukraine's east and south, but uh, the story, Galician story, also was very inspiring in this way. One character which interests me very much, and who uh, you write about him, is obviously Zacher Mazoch. I think you you write a preface to the Venice in Force, right? Yes, I did. And it's a it's fascinating text, and uh, I thank you very much for it. I was also inspired by by this text, and I started. Uh, Zacher Mazoch, and uh, I wrote myself an essay about this. Uh, oh, I'd, lo I'd love to read that. 
Yeah, it's in Ukrainian. I will send it to you. I think you can yes, make a Google absolutely. translation Thank or something. Yeah. But my argument, I think, is a little bit different uh, from yours, and I would like to hear what you say, because you are looking at Zahir Mazoch precisely as a person who lives in the East, in the, let's say, far East of the civilized uh, French-speaking Europe, and publishes in in the French uh, magazines, and this is like the, the, the voice of the East. I look at him in a different way. I look at him as the Western personality, as a personality educated in, in German culture, of course, fascinated by the uh, real or imaginary Ukrainian roots and Ukrainian environment. Let's let's remind that he was uh, born in Lviv or Lemberg uh, at that time. And he constructs the uh, the image of the East and primarily of the uh, of the Slavic East, which worries me very much because for me it's an image of sexualized violence. All his uh, all his characters, female characters that we of course know, uh, are the characters uh, that are both sexually attractive and violent. And when he just talks about women, it's fine. But when he talks about the tsarinas, the Russian tsarinas and empress, and I think he has several texts about that, well, that worries me a lot because it, I I feel that continuity again with, with Voltaire and Diderot, but in a different way, this fascination with violence, this erotization and sexualization of violence, which makes violence attractive. What do you think? Um, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. That that's part of his understanding of the East. That it's a place that one would think about in terms of sex and violence. Now, of course, it's the thing that Zahar Masoch is most famous for. People who know nothing at all about Lviv would um, um, understand. Um, Sahar Masoch for his, as a as a as a pornographer, right? Who wrote a classic work of soft porn, of soft porn um, in Venus and Furs, which um, clarified for a whole generation in Europe and perhaps even to the present day a certain category of sexual fantasies. What was interesting to me and what what I wanted to write about when I first wrote that introduction to Venus and Furs is I wanted. Um, the people who read the book to understand that it actually has a real geography underlying it and that the fantasies are imposed upon a, um, a real Eastern Habsburg geography, that is to say the, ge the geography of Galicia itself. Um, whether it's a constructive work or a um, a, a work that has, um, you know, negative implications. I think it's hard to say that about a work that is so entirely literary and so much a work of fantasy. But what I think you could say about Sacher Masoch, and I think you could say the same about Voltaire, right, with... Um, you know, even with all the negative implications of the way that he wrote about Russia, they serve to make these territories known in Europe. 
And that serves a certain purpose in, it, in, it, in its own right. That is to say, Sakhar Masoch made Eastern Galicia known to a very broad public in the 19th century. What, what was interesting to me was that while that the public of the 19th century did definitely understand Sakhar Masoch in relation to Rus people and, East, and Eastern Galicia, by the Early by the late 20th century, that had been almost forgotten, the connection between Zahar Masoch and that specific territory, because of course Galicia itself had been almost forgotten by the end of the 20th century. Absolutely. I think Zahir, I, I really love this writer. I think this image of a how you put it, soft porn is uh, is a little bit misleading because if if you read his text, well it's 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 about something else. So of course we cannot. Uh, who put this term? Is I think Kraft Ebbing, right? Uh, he just picked up this name yes. to match the name of Desad. But obviously these are these are absolutely different writers, and uh, I don't I don't see any any parallels between them. But I really loved reading Zahir Mazach. I I was reading him in German. My my German is enough for reading uh, this uh, literature, and I I do think that this is a, a very good writer. And indeed, uh, he was I think the most popular Austrian uh, writer in France, for example, and and the most known, at least one of the most known. I might add that um the idea of Eastern Europe as a area for sexual adventure is something that you can find in the 18th century as well, especially with Casanova. Yeah, yeah. Another brilliant writer, by the way, who ended his life in Prague. Yes. And who is who is the source of, uh, of uh, Don Giovanni, one can say, by Mozart, who was also presented in Prague first. Very interesting. Uh, maybe the last block of our interview uh, and um, of our conversation it's about another book of yours, which I really admire. It's about Woodrow Wilson. And uh, I think you, you really find a very interesting topic and ask very interesting question. And for me, it's, it's, it's two questions. Let me first ask the first one. So Woodrow Wilson is known as the father of the self-determination of nations. But what you show also in your book is that this self-determination of nations was quite limited. And I think it's it's also very very well put by Timothy Snyder in his course, Yale course in uh, about about Ukraine, that basically it it uh, it touched upon self-determination of nations in Austro-Hungarian Empire and partially Ottoman Empire, but not the Russian Empire. Is that the way how how you put it? I th- I think that that would be fair. To say, Wilson was both cautious about um, thinking through the national implications of the Russian Empire and limited at the same time. For me, one of the things that I found interesting about Wilson is that up until 1917, Wilson knew nothing about Eastern Europe. Really, I would say he never thought about it for five minutes up until 1917. So between 1917 and 1919, 
Um, he's a very brilliant man. He gives himself a crash course in learning about Eastern Europe with the assistance of a team of academics who are called the Inquiry Team, and they prepare him to think about Eastern Europe at the Peace Conference. And they are able to provide him with a lot of information and a lot of knowledge, but only up to a point. And he learns much less about the Russian Empire and is much more hesitant to engage himself on behalf of the nations of the Russian Empire. Yes, and and then, uh, well, how Snyder puts it very interestingly that the role that uh, Wilson played for the former Austro-Hungarian Empire and partially former Ottoman Empire was uh, played by Lenin in the Russian Empire. But, of course, the, what Lenin played is a, is a fake role. It was imitation of the self-determination of nations. And we all know that, that it was 1920s in the Soviet Union when, indeed, there was a process of of the renaissance of national cultures, in particular Ukrainian national culture. And then it was totally eliminated and executed and crushed and smashed by Stalin what in, in a period that we call exec, uh, executive renaissance. But then comes my second question with regard to Wilson. Um, and this is a question about America. So um, we, we tend to forget, uh, I think, that okay, everybody knows that America entered the Second World War quite late but uh, i mean uh, the, the, re, the 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 continental the fight on the continent against nazism uh, on the european continent but its uh, entry into the second world war was decisive but you show that um, america's entry into the first world war was also decisive and this is this is the role of woodrow wilson and this is this image of america that at a certain point um, enters the, uh, the the stage, the military stage in Europe, and uh, and uh, plays the major role, and then defines the world. And currently, we see the absolutely different mood in America, the isolationist mood in America, and um, the the arguments that. Uh, well, America should not intervene anymore. Should not play any any major role. Do you do you think this is worrying? Do you think that this goes against this um, this role that played was played by the United States in the twentieth century? Um, I think that in American politics, both strands have always been present. Remember that Wilson ultimately fails to get the peace treaty approved in the American Senate, um, that America never is able to join the League of Nations that Wilson um, partly you know, devises, and that he too comes up against forces of isolation when he comes back to America in 1919 to present the peace treaty that he has helped to create. So I'm not surprised that we see this struggle now in, Amer in American politics. Um, I think that um, it's you know, very scary that 
um, we are looking at isolationists who do not understand how much is at stake in Ukraine. But I'm also not entirely surprised that we would see this division emerging. It felt at first like we were looking at a kind of massive American unity and I would say Western unity with Europe as well um, behind Ukraine and its cause um, fighting against this war of Russian aggression. But as the war continues, it will become caught up in American politics for sure and in European politics as well. And especially this year, which is an election year in the United States, um, we should expect to see the parties um, trying to maneuver politically around this issue. Um, as I say, very sad and very scary and very misguided on the part of the isolationists, principally within the Republican Party, to not understand how much is at stake for all of us in the um, war between Russia and Ukraine. Larry Wolf, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you very much. This was a podcast to explain Ukraine by Ukraine World, a multilingual website about Ukraine. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. My name is Volodymyr Yermolko. I am Ukrainian philosopher and chief editor of Ukraine World and president of Pan Ukraine. Let me remind you that you can support our work at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We provide exclusive content for our patrons. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front lines at PayPal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. You can find these links in the description of this episode. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.